Father, we want to lift up uh, all our servants here. Lord, everything that you're doing here at this church, we are uh, humbled to be a part of your great power. Lord, your Holy Spirit is just overflowing us, filling us with wonder. And uh, I ask that you would speak to us through your word. In your name we pray. Amen. How to think about discipleship is what we're talking about today. So discipleship, I'm going to define it for you, is teaching others how to serve God. Teaching others how to serve God. Or you could say teaching others how to grow in grace. Teaching others how to grow in grace. Last week, we learned about serving God and pouring out our lives as a drink offering, the daily sacrifice. We learned about how Paul referenced that when he said, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. We learned how um, we don't serve God because it's required, but we serve God now out of love. God doesn't require you to tithe. If you choose to tithe, it's a free will gift from your heart to honor the Lord and to to make your money worth something. And your life, your, your, your words that you say, it's your choice how you spend them. And if you invest them in the kingdom, God says you will be rewarded. And we looked at the, that story that Jesus had of the, the rich young ruler and how he was unwilling to invest his life in the kingdom. He wanted to make sure he had his own kingdom, his own stuff going on. So the goal of the church is to serve God. To serve God is our, our, the reason why we're getting together here today is not primarily for you to be healed, although that happens, but the reason why you're healed is so that you can serve God. The primary reason, the primary reason for us to be here at church is not for you to get something out of it. Church isn't about you. <gasps> oh my goodness. There's a lot of churches that make it about the people, and it's wrong. Did you hear me? It's wrong. Church is not about you. It's about who? Jesus, his kingdom, the heavenly father. It's about God, and we are all right now being discipled, being taught how to serve him. We've already had an opportunity to serve him when we sang some songs. That is serving the Lord that brings him honor. It says he's enthroned on the praises of his people. He loves it. It's an opportunity for us to invest in his kingdom. His kingdom somehow grows when we sing songs from our hearts to him. How about that? Well, serving God. We are called in the Bible a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests. What does that mean? A kingdom of priests. We're going to look at a couple of verses before we get into Philippians about a kingdom of priests. That, that, the idea of a kingdom of priests, in my mind, pictures an entire nation of people just serving God. Like when they were walking through the desert, they just were serving God, doing whatever God wanted them to do. And now the church spreads throughout the entire world as a kingdom of priests. We are a kingdom that's not bound by any geographical lines or any political lines. We stretch and infiltrate and sneak our way into every country of the world to serve God. So we're this kingdom of priests. What does that mean? Well, number one, it was always the plan for Israel to be a kingdom of priests. Look at Exodus 19.6. Exodus 19.6. I'll turn there with you guys. And it says, Exodus 19.6. 
And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So God had chosen Israel to be his partners, to be his kingdom of priests or his servants. They were supposed to represent God to all the rest of the world, all the other nations, all the other, other nations that he scattered at the, the uh, Tower of Babel. They were scattered and, and God still had a heart for them and wanted reconciliation with them, even though they had rejected him. And so he, he said, I'm going to take, I'm going to make a people that will be my people, my representatives who will teach people and show people my heart. So they were supposed to represent so that all the Gentiles could know God and be saved as well. See, a lot of people say, so Israel was God's chosen people. That means the only, they were the only ones who were supposed to get saved. And that's not what the Bible says. God says anyone could serve God. And the way before Jesus came that they would do that, the way a Gentile could know God is they would come to Israel, dwell there, and they could make sacrifices there. They could become what's called a proselyte. They could actually become part of the nation of Israel. And so you had Israel was the natural children of Abraham plus all the other people who said, we want to know God too. And they would come and they would be part of the nation as well. Now, they weren't given the jobs of the priests and stuff, but they could at least know God. So it was pretty interesting how Israel was supposed to be that. But after a couple thousand years, what happened? They, they rejected that role. And so God needed a new people. And so now this role of being a representative king, kingdom of priests is given to the church. And we see that in 1 Peter 2.9. 1 Peter 2.9. Peter says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you might proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So everyone who believes in the work of Jesus and trusts him is given these amazing gifts to be kings and priests in God's kingdom. And it doesn't matter how unworthy you are, it's a gift. And it's offered to everyone who believes. So in Israel, how hard did you have to work to become a Jew? You were just born. Not too difficult, right? Maybe for the mom. But same with us. How hard do we have to work to enter into this role of being king and a priest, a royal priesthood, a special people, you don't. It is granted to you. It is given to you. And it doesn't go away. It doesn't go away. Like it or not, your whole life is now defined and wrapped up by these two roles. When you get saved, it doesn't matter what you want to do anymore. It doesn't matter what job you want to have. It doesn't matter who you want to marry else matters except being a king and a priest in God's kingdom, being concerned about his ways. It will be our life forever. And I got a couple of verses in Revelation that show us that. Revelation 1.6, and he made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We fast forward to Revelation 5.10, and it says, and has made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. So your life isn't going to matter. 
Only these two roles matter. The the king and the priest, that you're going to serve God. So get used to these two terms. They're going to be in your life forever. King means royalty. You are part of a royal family. Princes and princesses of the mighty king. A priest speaks of an honored position of service and representation. When people in the future want to know who God is, God's going to say, go talk to my priest. And what he means is you. He's going to want you to explain to people in the generations to come what he's like. Are you going to know? It's amazing because Jesus was the first priest king. We see him show up in the book of Genesis when we studied as that guy named Melchizedek. You remember him? He was called uh, the priest of Sa- the king of Salem and the priest of the Most High God. Now, in the, throughout the children of Israel's time, they never had a priest who was a king also because the priests had to be from the children of what? Levi. And the kings had to be from where? Judah. Okay? So they never had a priest who was a king also. But Hebrews 7 gives us a lot of detail about how Jesus actually became a king and a priest at the same time. So what we see is that Jesus is now up in heaven, and while he was on earth, and as he's been up in heaven, he's doing one thing, and that's discipling us. Jesus is. He is teaching us how to be kings and priests like he is. He, Jesus, is teaching us today, this morning, from heaven, through the Holy Spirit this morning, how to serve God like he does. Did Jesus do a good job of serving God? Oh, man. Every time God spoke about Jesus, he's like, Oh, I'm so pleased. He is doing a great job. Now look at this. If Jesus is doing, he's up in heaven. And the Holy Spirit, he's, it's an external change coming into our hearts from the inside. It's not sourced from us. This ability to serve God doesn't come from you. I don't want you to think, okay, I need to get down to business and start serving God. I need to be a king and a priest. Let me see how I do that. That is not how this works. It is given to us by the Holy Spirit. Jesus teaches us by the Holy Spirit as we read and hear and believe the word of God. That's how this discipleship takes place. So I wanted you to see all of that before we even get into our our study today. That Jesus is the real discipler. He is the one who shows us how discipleship should look. So now, in the church, we should teach one another how to serve God, and that process is called discipleship. Discipleship. Remember, discipleship is teaching others how to serve God, how to be a king and a priest in this world today. So with that, we get to the example of Timothy in Philippians chapter 2. Verses 19 through 23 is where we start. This is the example of Timothy. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus." 
but you know his proven character that as a son with his father, he served me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. So Paul is giving us this story, and through this, um, not a story, he's, he's communicating with these believers at Philippi, his heart for them, and he's telling them that he's going to send Timothy. But within that general message, there's a deeper lesson of how Timothy was discipled by Paul. And in that, we're going to see how discipleship should work in our church and in our lives. Timothy was Paul's disciple. He calls him his son in the faith. You see, Paul, he was fully serving God. He had a pastor's heart, and he knew how to honor God and how to trust his word. And so he knew that he needed to teach someone else to do what he was doing. He needed to reproduce. Healthy sheep will reproduce. Did you know that? Healthy sheep will reproduce. So after some time together with Timothy producing this disciple, uh, or with Paul producing Timothy as his disciple, um, Paul could be confident to send Timothy out to other people. And he sends Timothy many places, and right here he's talking about sending him to Philippi. And he knew that Timothy would basically do and teach what Paul himself would do if Paul was able to go. And this is what we do with discipleship. This is what we're called to do. It shouldn't be to grow a big church. If Paul's idea was to grow a church in jail where he was at, he wouldn't send Timothy, his greatest disciple, out. He would hoard him in and keep him in and keep him close to him. But his goal wasn't to get a big church. His goal was to serve God. And he saw some people who had a need, and so he discipled Timothy to send Timothy out. Um, creating clones of ourselves is kind of a way you can think about it. A clone army, Star Wars reference number one. <laughs> so discipleship, it sends out solid, biblically sound servants into the world wherever God may direct. A healthy church is ascending church. There's a great pastoral book written called Pastoral Graces. And the pastor there in England of his church, he has sent out and planted like 150 churches from his church. And so people hear about the greatness of this church and, and their discipleship and, their, and they come and walk in and they are many times blown away at how tiny and weird this church is. They have this tiny little church in England and little more than 75 to 150 people attend there every Sunday. They have a hard time filling all the children's ministry and all of the serving in their own church because their discipleship is so powerful that everyone who comes, they disciple and God send, tends to send them out to either plant churches or serve somewhere else rather quickly within a few years. And so they're constantly, some would say, struggling to fill up their own church. But in reality, they're like a heart pumping and beating. The blood is flowing and the ministry is flowing in and out and in and out. And they're being used tremendously for the kingdom of God. A, 
a healthy church is a sending church. And this is what discipleship does. Paul discipled Timothy, number one, this is very important, by teaching him about grace. Have you guys ever heard of that word before? You've never heard that? You're fired. Just kidding. I cut your pay in half. (laughs) Well, we see this, how Paul had discipled Timothy through both of his letters. I'm going to read you a couple verses from the letters in in Timothy. Well, we'll just read one. 2 Timothy 2, verse 1. Paul told Timothy, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. Be strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. This is so vital. He doesn't say, be strong in doing all the right things all the time. Did you know that is simply a byproduct of grace? A a sin-free life. I'm not talking sinlessness, but a life that's not dominated by sins is the natural consequence of a grace-filled life, someone who is strong in grace. There is a big deception out there when it comes to grace that grace is just sloppy and happy, that, that you can just do whatever you want. You come to Jesus, you believe that he loves you and he forgives you, and then you just sin and sin some more, and, and it's okay, you just do whatever you want. And that's not true grace. Grace in the Bible, when you're strong in it, the consequence is righteousness. Righteousness. I was doing discipleship with a friend this week, and one of the verses that we came across was, was that says the, that grace is the end of the law for righteousness to anyone who believes. Grace is the end of the law for righteousness to anyone who believes. It doesn't mean the law doesn't exist anymore. It means that the law isn't what you try hard to keep to get righteousness. Grace gives you righteousness when you believe in Jesus Christ. So Paul said, told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.1, be strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. And that is why at our church we do discipleship packets. Ta-da! How many of you have seen this before? All right. If you don't have one, you have an opportunity today. We're, gonna, we're talking about this today. This is great. And what do you think we teach in our discipleship packets? Grace. Absolutely. Because... We're called to be strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. The Bible never says be strong in law-keeping. True law-keeping is a symptom of a heart infected with grace. It's a symptom of a heart infected with the love and works of Jesus Christ. And law-breaking is only a symptom of a heart who doesn't yet understand and receive grace. If you're struggling in sin, it's not because you are horrible or you're not good enough. If you're struggling with sin or condemnation, it's simple. It's simply because you haven't drank 
the medicine of God's grace, which is His love, which is His free gifts. It is available. It is being held out to you. And all you have to do is take it in humility and faith, right? All right. I actually have an image. Did, you, did we happen to load up that triangle image? Throw up that triangle image for us. Ta-da! All right. I, I, I made this little image just so I could kind of uh, show you kind of the pyramid of how discipleship should work in a church and how we, we do it in our church, okay? So we're going to start on the bottom because that's the foundation of the pyramid and it should be the biggest, most vibrant, most vital part of our discipleship and that's one-on-one discipleship. That is the way that relationships, when you take someone out to coffee and you talk about the goodness of the Lord, about his grace, or you take one of these packets, you get a young brother and you say, hey, we're going to go through this packet. Or you get an older brother and say, hey, we're going to go through this packet and we're going to just talk about it. One-on-one discipleship. This takes time. We're going to talk about that in a little while at the end of the sermon. It takes time. It takes an investment in people. This is the only way you can have a solid discipleship going on in your church is one-on-one. But there's another way that we kind of build on top of that, and that's through small groups or anchor groups, we call them, where you get together, or Bible studies, Nathan's Monday night Bible study is a great one, where you get together in a smaller group where some more people can add their gifts of the Spirit and, and be used. And in those small groups, what do we talk about? Grace and what the, how good the Lord is. And it's a wonderful time as well. And then at the top is, is the Sunday service, which we're going to talk about. Grace. We're going to teach about grace. And then that message will filter down through the anchor groups and through the one-on-one meetings, and everything is bound together in this one command to be strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. It's time-consuming. It's slow because there are so many aspects of grace. Grace is like a diamond, In fact, Peter tells us a verse in 1 Peter 4.10 that says, uh, each one has been given a gift or received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And the word manifold in Greek means many-sided or like the different facets of a diamond. So grace is like this diamond and there's so many different facets that I could never talk about all of them on Sunday morning. And anchor groups could never cover all of them. And so we need people, individual people, to meet one-on-one so that the Spirit can use your gifts to minister to each other. One-on-one, where you can give each other attention and love and devotion. And these things are, is how we do grace. Here he says, each one has received a gift, so minister it to one another. Serve one another. We're learning, but we, we, we read learned last week that we need to serve God. And this is the number one way that we're going to serve God is by serving one another and talking about the goodness of God, the love of God, which is grace. I know there are many different thoughts about discipleship and different plans, different courses and different Bible colleges and seminaries, and they all talk about different things when it comes to grace. But what the Bible says is that all, all 
all growth in a Christian's life is directly related to understanding and applying grace into their life. All growth. It leaves no, no room for any efforts, no room for any plans or strategies. It is all directly related to how you understand God's love for you, his gifts to you, and then apply them into your life and into your heart. There is no other plan in the Bible for growing. It's called sanctification. The day-by-day growth in the Lord. There is only one way it happens, and that is by grace. In 2 Peter 3.18, the last verse of 2 Peter, Peter says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That is a, this is a command that stretches through all of time. It is how all growth happens through grace. I want you guys to grow. I don't want you to be stagnant. I'm sure you don't want to be stagnant either. And so I'm going to push you, push grace upon you. I'm going to push you towards grace. I'm going to encourage you to reach out and take the grace that's been given to you. And I'm never going to push you towards law-keeping performancism. Oh, you just got to try a little bit harder, buddy. That doesn't work. God's love transforms the heart. God's law only convinces you how much you need to be transformed. So wonderful, this grace. And I didn't come up with this discipleship idea of grace either. It's simply what they did in the book of Acts. Hey, if we want to know how to do church, where do you think we should look? The book of Acts. It teaches us how to do church. So in Acts chapter 20, I want to draw your attention to two verses in Acts chapter 20 that really hit the nail on the head with the hammer. I usually say hit the nail on the hammer, but that's linguistically inappropriate. In Acts chapter 20, verse 24, Paul says, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord. What was his ministry? To testify of the gospel of the grace of God. The gospel of the grace of God. So all of God's good news is wrapped up in this term grace. It is all the good news that we have is grace. And Paul says, my entire life is wrapped up in testifying, teaching. So the only way I'm going to serve God is one strategy. I'm going to tell people about the gospel of grace, the grace of God, what he has done for you. Did you know when he died on the cross, he washed your sins away? That's the first step of grace. Did you know that when he died on the cross, he broke the power of sins and so he can give you power over sin in your life today. You can live a godly life today because of the gospel of grace. This is how we must grow. Now, skip down to verse 32. Look at verse 32. So not only did Paul use that as his strategy, but he told all the churches that he planted, you guys better do the same thing too. Look what he says in verse 32. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his what? Grace. 
But look what he says now, which is able. We're learning about an ability of the grace of God. It is able to build you up. It's able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. It is able to build you up. Well, discipleship is teaching others how to grow in the Lord. So if we want to be built up in the Lord and built up to have rewards in heaven to serve the Lord, he says it's only grace that is able to do that. Knowing the promises of God and applying them into your life. Now, this discipleship packet that we have is not messing around. It is 31 weeks long, if you did one a week, or 31 hours of study. And when you finish that, I have a lot more. But it's, it is not messing around. We, we are going to grow in grace. First Peter commanded us, 2 Peter 3.18, to grow in grace. Paul said, be strong in grace. Discipleship is about learning grace. Now, maybe you think, well, I want to know all the other doctrines too. I want to know, I want to have good theology. I want to understand eschatology. I want to know about the gifts of the Spirit and all these things. And all those things are fine. All those things are great. And you will learn them through the process of grace because grace teaches you all things. We learn by grace. But the focus must be on grace. God's work towards us. It's safe to think this way. It really helps us out. So let's, in our verses that we read about Timothy, we have some clues, some words that show us how discipleship works, how it turns out. Well, number one, Timothy turned out like-minded. Why do I want you guys all to learn about grace? Why am I always talking about it? I want us to be like-minded. Verse 20 says, For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care about your state or for your state. Discipleship creates like-minded people. And this is a must to serve together. Um, and I can bear witness, I can promise you guys, that when you teach and disciple according to grace, it works. It works. It's slow, but it is a guarantee. Every person who I've ever discipled according to grace and taught them about grace guess what? They're serving the Lord. They haven't fallen. It's wonderful. It works. But it takes time. You have to give it time. You have to invest. You have to grow in it. Like a plant. If you wanted to grow some flowers in your garden, do you ever go out there and plant them and the next day go and yell and say, I'm so disappointed in you. What are you doing with your life? Grow! No, we don't do that because we understand that it takes time. We have love and patience and grace. Well, grace creates like-minded people. It's life-changing. And our goal is to dive into that truth so that we can all be like-minded. And it's amazing uh, to be like-minded with brothers and sisters here at our church at White Flag. It is like the joy of my life, that I can say H and F, F and H, and people know what I'm talking about. If you don't, you need to do some discipleship. Ask BK. 
And it produces, the second thing we see in this verse is that it produces sincere love. Sincere love. We don't have to fake our love. Do you ever come to church and be like, I don't really like these people. When grace is our foundation, we will naturally grow in real, genuine love. So the the way out of that isn't faking it. The way out of that hypocritical heart is grace. Learning how much God loves you and has done for you, it will change your heart. It's awesome. The solution for a loveless marriage isn't more rules. It's more grace. More supernatural power to be the person God wants you to be. Um, I actually... Did I give you another image about a a grace definition? All right, I'm going to show you guys this so we can look at it and see it at the same time. Okay, so this is a great definition of grace I just wanted to draw your attention to. The grace of God is God freely providing for us as we humbly trust in the Lord Jesus. There's your H&F. All that we need for growth and godliness and service. All that we need to walk in in what we are commanded to do and to become, all that our hearts now yearn to enter into for his glory. Yet, all of these spiritual realities could never be deserved by us, could never be earned by us, and could never be produced by us. Now, it's easier to remember the acrostic grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, right? But, I like that one. It's full. I don't have it memorized yet, but I should. So grace is life-changing. It doesn't just mean you get a free ticket to heaven. It means you get a free ticket to heaven and a changed heart and a changed life. The next, the third thing we see from Timothy is he has a proven character. Timothy is turned out to be able to live a godly life. His life showed that he was a godly man. There was evidence. Grace discipleship produces real, tangible proof that God is at work in your life because he changes your very character, which shows through your outward actions. You cannot hide your character, and you can't change your character on your own. It will come out. So grace actually changes who you are on the inside. You become a truly spiritual person, a truly God-loving person. And then it says uh, that he was, as a son with his father, he served me in the gospel. Paul says that about Timothy. So Timothy turned out to be committed and faithful and able to serve. Grace is the only way to serve God effectively. Now, we could do a servant's class where we teach you how to wipe babies' butts and how to serve kids in junior high or high school or serve on the worship. We could do that, but I would rather skip all of it and just teach you about grace and let God teach you how to serve. I don't know what gifts God has given you, but as you learn about grace, the godly character God plants in you and the gifts he's given you just come out. And I don't have to decide. I just look at who's God raising up. Well, let me, let me just look around. Who's serving? Who's here? Who is God raising up? I can tell by their actions what God has been doing in their heart. It's easy. 
It's easy. I don't have to decide, well, we're gonna, we need someone in this ministry and I got I to gotta make sure that they're able. No, I'm free. Not my responsibility. I pray for God to raise up people and I wait for him to answer my prayer. How cool is that? How cool is that? I make sure you're safe and your kids are safe, but I let God do the discipleship. It's awesome. So he says here that as a son with his father, he served me. D.L. Moody was a great guy. You guys know who he was? He was this evangelist, and he, he ended up having a huge ministry in Chicago. But before that, he was a, kind of a traveling preacher, and he would preach in Boston and New York. And as he would go around preaching, he would preach some really powerful sermons, and a few people would get saved. But everyone agreed his sermons were powerful, they were wonderful, they were eloquent, even though he didn't even know how to read. He never really, he was a horrible reader, didn't know how to speak well. But he had these great sermons, and along the way, something changed. He had a person, an old guy with gray hair, and he was just leaving a sermon that he had preached, an evangelistic sermon, and this old guy came up to him, and he pointed at him as he was getting into his car, and he says, next time, do it with the power of the Holy Spirit. And he was like, jerk, what are you talking about? I'm, being, I'm the one up there preaching. I know what I'm doing. But it really sunk into his heart. And as he humbled himself before the Lord and sought the Lord, the Lord showed him the realities of grace. And, in, and the next time he got up to preach, he got up and said, I'm weak. I'm nauseous. And he waited and had people pray for him and lay hands on him. And when he preached... Hundreds of people got saved. In his own strength, a few people, there was meh. But when grace was upon him, it was an amazing spiritual power seen in his preaching and in his life. And it continued with him for the rest of his life to where he's one of the most dynamic evangelists that we've ever seen in this world. It's amazing. Why was it different because grace is the spiritual engine of our car. You remember that from last week, that example that we gave. Grace is the engine. Nothing works without it. And no matter how hard you try, you really can't serve God by trying hard. You can't. We can't try to be a kingdom of priests representing God to the world. It's only given to us. A deep understanding and drinking in of grace must come first before you're used greatly by God. And why do you think it is then that we have to hurt and suffer most of the times before we can really be used by God? Because we're so stubborn that we refuse to really come to God until we're hurting. We refuse to really drink deeply of his love until we're broken. And that's why God loves you. And if he needs to break you in order for you to understand how much he loves you, he will. In his love. Not because he hates you, because he loves you. And he wants you to see how much he could use you. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, every single one of you is a vessel that can hold wondrous power in the Holy Spirit.
And then it becomes not a burden to serve him. It becomes like a son with a father. In other words, Timothy had the same goals as Paul. Paul didn't have to try to teach him, well, this is what you do all the time, and our denomination does it like this. He didn't have to do any of that. He just said, God loves you. God cares for you, and he's given you grace. Now go serve him. It's beautiful freedom. There's no limits or constrictions. He's not serving for a paycheck or to be noticed. They're both working for the same kingdom, Paul and his son, Timothy. A a son who works for his father's business is much more concerned, usually, than the hired hand. Because it's his family name on on the door, right? It's, his, it's part of who he is. It's his very heart. And that's what Paul says grace discipleship did in Timothy's life. His name was on the door. All right. Now we get to the next portion, which is the example of Epaphrodites, who we're going to look at briefly. It says in verse 24, But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall come to you shortly, yet I considered it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. Since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you heard that he was sick, for indeed he was sick, almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only in him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly, that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness and hold such men in esteem, because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply that was lacking in your service towards me. So Paul didn't disciple Epaphroditus, but he still honored him. We can't think that only people we disciple can really be used here, or in our life, or in our church. That forms clicks really fast. So we can't think, oh, they weren't discipled at White Flag, so you're going to have to spend a while learning at my feet, young Padawan. Star Trek reference number two. Star Wars. Boo. Sorry, golly. See, that was of the flesh. It was totally wrong. Not in the spirit at all. Paul saw Epaphroditus. He was a great guy, and he had already been discipled over here in Philippi. So he accepts him as three things. A brother, that means family. As a fellow worker, that means he saw him as a partner. And as a fellow soldier, he saw him in the same battle, on the same side in the battle. So Paul, he's too busy fighting spiritual warfare with the enemy to make another enemy of a brother who was discipled by someone else. Our our friends over here at DCBC, the church that they're our landlords, they have a different denomination, but they love Jesus. And we can serve the Lord together in nearly everything if pride won't get in the way, if pride doesn't get in the way. And it's been awesome. Our relationship with them has been awesome. 
We're serving them. They're serving us. We're happy when they grow. They're happy when we grow. We pray for them. They pray for us. It's like a perfect partnership. It's wonderful. And yet we don't have to be the same church. We don't have to believe all the exact same things. I don't even know what they, don't, what they believe, but I can see that they've learned grace, that they're learning about grace, and that they love Jesus Christ. So we're on the same team. Why would I make an issue, make them my enemy when they're not? I'm too busy fighting that spiritual warfare. So he makes a powerful statement about Epaphrodites that he didn't regard his life. So at the end of his little spiel there about Epaphrodites, he said he got sick and, and he didn't regard his life. And I want you, I draw your attention to this because this was a, an interesting thing in Greek. It, it was a gambling term. A gambling term, meaning he gambled with his life. He gambled with his life. He was willing to serve God even if it cost him his life. And did you know that early believers were called the gamblers by people in the world? Because they were taking their life and they were taking a huge risk with their life by believing in Jesus Christ. The government said, it's illegal and you will die. And people said, all right, I risk it. I'm not going to reject this love that Jesus offers me. I'm going to gamble on it. So can I ask you a question? Are you gambling your life? The answer is yes, you are. Because you're either gambling your life on what the world says to do, that's number one, on what you think you should do, or on what the Word of God says you should do. And two of those bets are not going to turn out well. The world says you should chase certain dreams and ideas of success. You should serve them with your best efforts. Your mind says you should preserve yourself at all costs and don't ever take a risk that could cost you everything. Serve yourself with your best efforts. But the word of God asks us to make a crazy bet that God would come through for you if you just believe his promises. To serve God by grace alone. Discipleship is teaching others how to serve God, teaching others how to grow in grace. So what we're doing is we're teaching them how to gamble. That'll be a good hashtag. We're teaching them how to gamble correctly. Have you been betting your life on the wrong thing? Discipleship is how you learn to gamble the right way. You learn to trust the Lord by learning about his grace. I charge you to get involved in discipleship. These packets are available. I printed seven new ones. And I think we had one more in the back. Go through them. You can do it on your own. It, it talks about how to listen to the things. It gives you instructions. Or meet with another brother or sister. Guys with guys, girls with girls, unless you're married. You know the drill. But learn it. Just go through it. And when, you, when it feels long and when it feels tiring, just consider it a bet. 
Consider it a gamble. And say, Pastor Sean said, if I go through this, it'll change my life. I want you to gamble on what I said. Because what I'm saying is just what the Word of God said. Grow strong in the grace of Jesus Christ. Grow in grace. You can't say, I don't have time. You're not allowed. Because Jesus owns your time. If you believe in him, he grants you 24 hours a day to serve him as a king and a priest. I'm sure you can invest one hour a week with a brother or sister talking about the beauty of his love and his grace towards us. You could probably gamble a lot more than one hour a week, couldn't you? How big of a bet are you willing to make on the faithfulness of God? 1% of your time, do you think that's a good bet? 5% of your time? 10% of your time? 1% of your time is 100 minutes a week. 100 minutes and 50 seconds to be exact. 1% is an hour and 40 minutes of your week. That's almost two hours. I'm going to bet that God's way of discipleship is worth my 1% investment. Are you with me? And if you know me, I actually bet a lot more on God's promises, on his grace. I believe his word. Do you? Are you with me? Let's be a the new version of the gamblers, these New Testament believers, a church who's betting everything on the simple promises God laid out in his word called grace. We're supposed to be this kingdom of priests, and I don't think we can be what we're supposed to be if we don't do this, if we won't learn how through grace. Discipleship transforms us from a kingdom of kids playing and messing around with our lives to a kingdom of priests ready and equipped to serve God. I meet with a lot of you guys weekly or as much as we can. I'm a, I meet on a Wednesday mornings with the men at 6 a.m., at Sojourners at 8 a.m. here at the church. I make myself available I do one-on-one meetings with as many guys as I possibly can, and I could do more. If anyone wants to meet with me, is willing to meet with me, I'm down. Because I am betting it all on grace. I will get up early. My wife knows I hate getting up early. But I've never really complained on Wednesday mornings and Thursday mornings when I get to meet with you, Jay, or whatever, when I'm getting up early... I'm making my bet on the Lord. And I'm so excited that of the fruit that will come from this. Because we trust in Him alone. I know we could grow bigger, faster in other ways. I know that. But I've chosen to say we're not going to outrun the Holy Spirit. We're going to do it His way. We have a very simple triangle thing that you can look at. But I don't care. It's not really that. It's just grace. 
We're just believing that he does things the way that he wants to do them, which is for us to grow in grace. Would you stand with me? Father, you're so wonderful to teach us how to think about discipleship and how simple it is. Lord, I pray that the realities of your love and of your grace would continue to transform our life. And I love praying that because I know that the answer is yes and amen. I know that you will respond when people look unto you with humility and faith. Lord, I pray that you would work in the hearts of my beloved friends that anyone who has been slacking and gambling their life on things that are not according to your grace, that they would feel the urge of your spirit. They would come up and they would grab a packet and they would go through it alone or get together with a brother or sister and, and talk about your grace and learn of your grace. Lord, I pray for great humility and I pray that if anyone is pridefully saying that they don't need you right now, I pray that you would break them down by the love of the Holy Spirit. I pray that we would know the great power of your spirit. Like Dio Moody preached with such the same sermons before and after your grace, but Lord, you used them so powerfully. And Lord, we want to be used. We want to be a kingdom of priests. We want to be your servants, giving our whole lives to honor you and praise you. Jesus, we thank you for what sources all of this grace, which is your work on the cross. And as we take communion right now, Lord, I pray that we would remember and see the power of the work of the cross cleansing us, Lord. Cleansing us from all our sin, giving us new life, giving us fresh amounts of your spirit. God, we need you so much. Fill us again. Fill us brand new. Help us to know the joy of our salvation, Lord. 